Chapter 45 My nerves had been on a high ledge all night. I couldn't sleep, and it showed. Strange to think it, but my concerns for Jamie Heller were getting the better of me. By the time I arrived at the office and set about looking busy and important, my senses were jangling. Each time I mentioned the next astonished colleague that I'd been asked to go to the station to represent a suspect in the Heller case, my anxiety seemed to spike even higher until I couldn't stop my hands trembling. The short discussion I had with Antony, the Ficker bride, was at least soothing. When he found out from me what was happening, he said that I was in no fit state to deal with it. Look at you, he said. I looked at my arm in a cast, then back at him. He withdrew his mobile and called the police station. He was told, matter-of-factly, what I'd been told, that Borsuk had asked for me and he didn't want anybody else. When the vicar found out that I and I alone had been invited by this Borsuk person to represent him, he became furious in a formal, lawyerly sort of way. It was not out of any concern for me that I may be in over my head or something like that, but because Anthony Bride considered himself to be the more appropriate candidate for such a high-profile investigation. Who is he? Bride asked. I haven't a clue, I said. Why has he asked for you? I don't know, I said. You can't even write notes, Bride seethed, pointing his fleshy chin at my cast. I shrugged and noticed only then that I was enjoying our little exchange. It took my mind off the pressure that would build over the course of the rest of the day. I told Bride he was quite right. I really wasn't in any fit state. But he and I both knew that I had to do this. It was a murder. The case was likely to be as high cost as it was prestigious. For the firm, I said stoically, I will do my level best, Antony. I promise. Instead of writing notes, I thought I'd try making a recording of my consultation with Borsuk, using an application on my phone, I explained. Bride gave the appearance of being mollified. Good idea, he said, walking away, losing interest. Very sensible. I got to the police station at about six in the evening on the third day of the police investigation. There was a blockade of journalists at the front of the station, as well as a mingling, hostile crowd looking for any opportunity to vent their rage. For this reason, arrangements had been made for me to use a side entrance. I was met there by an officer I didn't recognize, and one I did. The officer I didn't know was called Dunn, like the poet, I thought. He was quiet and stood back, in order to let his colleague present me with a document disclosing the circumstances of my client's arrest. This other officer was called Keefe. I had long regarded him to be an offensive, small-minded man. I thought him naturally cruel. Until it became a crime, many in those parts liked to hunt foxes and deer, according to the tradition, chasing them down on horses with packs of hounds. Keefe was the kind who would have enjoyed this sport, not for the sake of the chase, or the skill of the ride, or the company, or just being present in open moorland, but for the opportunity of being first on the scene when some creature got itself torn to bits by dogs. He greeted me with his brand of false joviality. 
be heard about your little mishap, he said, apparently comfortable with the fact that, as a policeman, he could refer to a member of the public being viciously attacked by someone armed with a metal bar as a little mishap. T.S. Dunn was more formal. He handed me two copies of a document. When you're ready, he said, could you please sign one? Keefe was unable to remain still or quiet. Your client has been arrested on suspicion of the murder of a youth, he said, easing himself into a chair. He had only repeated word for word the first sentence of the single-sided document D.S. Dunn had handed me. I thought about saying, it's what you haven't written here that I need to know, but I resisted. I sat at the desk in the solicitor's room and began to read three short paragraphs while both men watched. It was easy to miss details when you were being scrutinized in that contrived situation with its own pressures. I was calm, though, and I took it slowly. I had long since learned how to digest disclosure documents under the gaze of officers bent on securing a conviction purely on the basis of the arrest they'd made. The document revealed that statements had been taken from witnesses living in and around a village on the moor where a boy called Jamie Heller had lived. These statements suggested that in recent weeks the boy had formed a close relationship with Vigantus Borsuk, a 64-year-old Lithuanian national, I learned, who had been living in England for roughly as long as I had. Mr. Borsuk was a retired gentleman. He had no criminal convictions in the UK, but my disclosure noted that in 1994 he'd received a custodial sentence in Lithuania for kidnapping. The next paragraph was about a t-shirt the police had seized. It had been hidden under a bush, not far from the village Jamie Heller had lived in. It had been identified as belonging to Jamie by his mother. There was a quantity of blood stained around the neckline and along the right shoulder of the garment. The police had also found some kind of axe, not far from the location of the discovery of the t-shirt. It was described as a flint axe. There were traces of blood on it. The document clarified that Mr. Borsuk possessed an extensive collection of supposedly ancient weaponry. If there's anything you don't understand, D.C. Keefe said, please feel free to ask. I'd already decided to ignore his baiting. More than usually, I needed to read this document extremely carefully if I was to get anything from it. Pre-interview disclosure, especially in the most serious cases, could be misleading as to the lines of inquiry the police wanted to discuss. The disclosure had to be truthful, but it was rarely complete. The police were required only to provide solicitors with a brief summary of the reasons for a person's arrest. I assumed they hadn't found Jamie's body yet. Otherwise, there would have been plenty of direct and far more compelling material linking Borsuk to the crime he'd been arrested for. Without a body, murder was always going to be a speculative charge. But with sufficiently weighty circumstantial evidence, I knew it would not be impossible to convince a jury that a murder had been committed. The most damning evidence had been left for the final paragraph of the document I was reading. Following a search of my client's home, Jamie's mobile phone had been located in his front room. The phone had been examined. In recent days, his mother's number had been dialed from the phone just once, on the day after he disappeared. 
Mrs. Heller's number was printed at the bottom of the page, along with the timing of this call to her, which had occurred at 0953 the previous day. The final innocuous sentence of the document informed me that your client will be asked how he came to be in possession of the victim's mobile phone. I might have challenged them, or at least tested them, as I initialed their copy of the disclosure document in a rough scrawl using my left hand. I could have said, is this all you've got, for example. But of course it wasn't all they had. They had more, and we all knew it. They had the advantage of being in control, as well as an ability to exert pressure when they needed to. As far as they were concerned, they had already given me more than my fair share of information, and that was all I was going to get. Without asking anything, I had already understood their strategy. Their purpose would be to extract a confession. By arresting him for murder, keeping him locked in a cell for twenty-four hours, and only then presenting him with a case that appeared conclusive, they hoped that Vigantas Borsuk would crack and tell them everything. Either he'd hidden the boy's body, or Jamie was still alive, in which case he needed to be rescued. Whichever it was, Mr. Borsuk was looking at the wrong end of a murder investigation, and he'd be a fool not to reveal what he knew straight away. Thank you, officers, I said, handing the document back to D.S. Dunn. Did Mr. Borsuk say anything significant to you, either on his arrest or since he's been in custody? Under the code of practice for suspects held in police stations, this was about the only other evidential question I was entitled an answer to. I knew straight away that I was being fobbed off when D.C. Key said, We'll be here all day if you really want to know everything he said after we arrested him. D.S. Dunn interjected. There was quite a lot, he said, but nothing especially significant, Mr. Loser. He didn't confess to much. If anything, he seemed outraged that we should be arresting him at all. He didn't confess to much, I repeated. His English is as good as yours, D.S. Dunn said. He certainly doesn't need an interpreter. But Mr. Borsuk's speech can be colorful at times, which makes it open to interpretation. We'll be asking him about what he meant by a number of statements he made on and after his arrest. And let's just leave it at that, shall we? Chapter 46 Shortly after my discussion with the police, Mr. Borsuk was led into the room where I was waiting to consult with him. It was an airless, windowless, bland space, with a table and two chairs, all screwed to the floor. As the door was locked behind him, I stood up and smiled sheepishly, knowing my arm in a cast was unlikely to inspire confidence. Borsuk didn't smile back. I sensed he might even be hostile. I tried to conceal my apprehension with a pleasant form of greeting. How do you do, I said, trying to disguise my accent. My name is Otto Loser, solicitor. I know who you are, the man said in his own accent, which was stronger than I'd anticipated. It was his voice that I remarked. The voice grated on me. The muscles in his face didn't move, just the moustache. He had long, thin arms and calloused hands. His pale eyes were fixed on mine, looking down at me. I struggled to appear casual, keeping my smile in place for longer than was necessary. 
Although Borsuk had a day's stubble, and was disheveled and smelled rank, he held himself as straight as a rifle. Returning to my chair, inviting him to sit, I deliberately avoided his eyes for the time being. When he sat, it was with an erect, military posture, too composed, not once leaning back in the seat. In front of me was my copy of the disclosure document. I continued to craft my words in an amiable way, which was my usual style with suspects in the police station, no matter who they were or how serious the situation was. I understand you asked for me specifically, I mentioned. That's correct, he said. Yes, it is, I said, tilting my head slightly. I was curious about how this strange fellow had come to hear of me. He didn't appear to want to offer an explanation. So I let it go, thinking we might come back to this after we got to know each other a bit better. I explained that he was under arrest and what that meant legally. I told them that he was about to be formally interviewed and that the interview would be digitally recorded as evidence. I explained his right to silence. It's a conditional right, I told him, to the extent that if you decline to answer questions today, and you are put on trial, your silence in the face of questioning could end up being to your disadvantage. This is because, in any trial, a judge would be entitled to draw attention to your silence in the police station. Borsuk didn't budge. He kept staring at me. A jury could be invited to infer, I pressed on, that you had come up with your defense since being questioned by the police knowing exactly what they were alleging, and using that information to your advantage. Let them put me on trial, Borsuk said. I couldn't care less. The amiable patter I ordinarily produced, and my intention to maintain it with this man, had already begun to falter. I nodded, drawing breath, and producing another not-so-winning smile. They would only put you on trial if you were thought to be denying the allegation, I said, as neutrally as I could. If you weren't denying it, there would be no need for a trial. Borsuk exhaled lightly through his nose. His taciturn approach was bordering on belligerence. I explained that due to an unfortunate mishap, I was unable to write notes, as I would usually, if he didn't mind, I propose to record our conversation. He shook his head then. The gesture was slight but emphatic. You don't want me to make a record of our conversation, I asked. I do not, he said. It suits me that you can't write anything down. I would not have wanted you to take notes. Mr. Borsuk, you've asked me here to advise you. You've been arrested because the police believe you've murdered a child. It's likely to be a long and arduous interrogation. I expect they'll be interviewing you for many hours to come. You'll forgive me if I need some means of recording your instructions to me. You will record nothing, he said. You need only listen to me. You really mustn't worry, Mr. Borsuk, I said, leaning back in my chair, if only to compensate for his ridiculously rigid posture. Everything you say to me must be held in the strictest confidence. I'm not permitted to disclose what you tell me to anyone, at least not without your permission. I'm here to serve your interests and your interests alone. 
You can't tell anyone what I say, he asked. That's right, I said. Perfect. Then we should get along. Let's be clear, I began. I'm not here to get along with you. My role here as a solicitor is to explain the law to you as it relates to this investigation and to offer you free legal advice in respect of whatever you wish to say about it. I don't want to say anything about it. The way this conversation was developing, I could only feel perplexed by his attitude. What did he mean by it? Was he indicating that he'd done it? I asked him directly if it was his intention not to answer any questions put to him by the police. That is my intention, he said. You understand, then, that a jury would be entitled to regard anything you say subsequently with suspicion, I asked. I don't want to say anything to a jury, he said. I took my mobile from my jacket pocket. Then you'll permit me to record your instructions to me that you have understood your right to silence, but that you do not wish to answer any questions put to you by the police. You will record nothing, he said. A few responses to this exceptionally inflexible client had begun to formulate in my thoughts. I could have walked out. Seeing as he had wanted me to be there, it was the one strong suit I had. But I didn't think this ruse would work. Although I disliked Borsuk and felt compromised by him, walking out didn't seem realistic. He was stubborn. I sensed he would not ask me to come back, and may even consent to being interviewed without a solicitor present. I could accept his terms, I thought, as we stared hard at each other. After all, if I'd stormed out of the police station every time I took an irrational dislike to a person I was supposed to be advising, I wouldn't have lasted long in the job. I could see why the police had arrested him. Their case may not have been as robust as they would have liked for a criminal trial, but their suspect was an ideal fit. Borsuk was tediously arrogant. He fell naturally into the role of being loathed and therefore misunderstood. Add to this the fact that he was a Lithuanian immigrant who had somehow weaseled his way into Jamie Heller's life, and his prosecutors wouldn't need much more than they already had to get a jury to convict him and a judge to condemn him. The middle way, I decided in all of an instant, would be to get to know him better. We could carry on talking. Before long, I could begin to persuade him, when he'd begun to realize the trouble he was in, that it would be in his own interest if I were to be permitted to record what he was saying to me in confidence. After all, I reasoned, it seemed that he'd been keen enough to talk to the police after they'd arrested him. Very well, I said, slipping my mobile away. Are you willing to discuss the accusation being made about you? What do you want to know? he asked. Were you in prison for kidnapping in 1994? I was, he said. I nodded. I took my grandson from his mother, he explained. He anticipated my next question and said, The boy was given back to her while I was in prison. I haven't heard from either of them since. They both could be dead for all I know. It's unlikely the police are aware of this, I said. He shook his head. It doesn't matter. Mr. Borsuk, I'll tell you what matters. It's quite simple. 
The police have found a t-shirt with blood on it. It's Jamie Heller's t-shirt. I'm told you befriended the boy. Not far from the t-shirt, they found some sort of axe. It's a replica, he said. It's your axe? His eyes didn't flicker, but his gaze hardened. You would like to know if my axe was the murder weapon? He asked. I was wise enough not to show my dismay. Borsuk's voice was getting louder. Now when he spoke, it was in the tone of an accusation. You'd like me to say I killed the boy? I decided not to answer. In the silence that followed, he stared more defiantly, twisting his stare into the beginnings of a smile. I felt threatened by this. I couldn't explain why. As calmly as possible, I moved on to the matter of Jamie Heller's mobile phone. What about his mobile phone? Borsuk asked. They found it in your front room, I said. Where did they find it? he asked. In your front room, I repeated. Where? he snapped. I didn't know where. I'll tell you where, he said. They found it on my desk where I left it in plain sight for everybody to see. So you were in possession of Jamie Heller's mobile phone, I said. Borsuk's hands shifted. He finally looked away, but he was still smiling. Something in his resignation made me believe that Jamie was dead. Having to guess at his guilt was making it difficult for me to advise him. I needed to know. I told him that no matter what happened, he would be remanded into custody on his first court appearance. If he went on to refuse to say anything during the proceedings, he would be regarded as having entered a not guilty plea. He would face his trial for murder, whether or not anyone ever found Jamie's body again. My guess was that he would be convicted easily. Now perhaps you'd like to tell me what happened, I said. He shook his head. No one needs to know. There might have been something different about him now, as if he was about to soften. Consequently, there would be something different about me. I no longer wished to push him. I felt that if I gave Borsuk just a few more seconds, everything that needed to be said would be said. What he went on to say was stranger than anything I could have expected. Like me, Otto, you've lost everything, he told me. All either of us has left is the love we used to feel for loved ones. When we can't feel that anymore, everything is lost. My hands and nose grew cold as he said this. My emotions didn't allow for any kind of reflection. Those few words from this perfect stranger meant too much. It felt as if I was trying to pull myself out of a dive. I forced myself to repeat the words, perhaps you'd like to tell me what happened, because it was the last thing I'd said as a solicitor that made any sense to me. I could tell you where he can be found, Borsuk said. His manner, his words, as well as the strong sense that he knew something about me, were intolerable enough. But offering to tell me where the boy's body was? It seemed too bizarre. My muscles tensed as I tried to think this through. I needed to leave the room. As I got to my feet, I put my good hand on the table to steady myself. Borsuk hadn't compromised me professionally, yet. 
but it was only a matter of time before he would. He stretched and rested his hand on my good arm. I find archaeology helps, he said. I have a feeling for the past. I try to understand what humans knew before civilizations happened and created so many confusions. Let me share my secret with you. I sat back down. Other than to advise him to confess to his crime, there was nothing more I could do for him. But I decided to listen. I'll tell you what happened, Borsuk said, but only if you do something for me first. My mouth fell open. My eyes fell vacant. There was something so grotesque about all of this that it had to be looked at. Promise not to tell anyone but his mother, he said. I was shaking my head. Borsuk wasn't in the slightest disturbed by my incredulity. I know you will do as I say, because I know you, Otto, he continued. He picked up the disclosure document and pointed to Teresa Heller's mobile number. Leave the police station now, he told me. Call his mother as soon as you can. I will explain how to find the boy. And you will tell Teresa Heller. 